Hey everybody, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, episode 308 of the Ask Gary V Show and I'm super excited about our guest. Uh, just knowing this audience and some of the prior episodes when this inquiry came in, I kind of jumped on it and said yes, let's do it right away. Uh, right away in my world, I don't know if that was a couple months ago but I've been excited about having Ivan here. As a matter of fact, just to show you how much, nobody from my admin, no, we had a crazy big uh, business pitch uh, at VaynerMedia and um, and I got, a, I got a text from my admins Thursday saying, hey, we need to move the Ivan Ask Gary V show for you to make this pitch. And I never use my content to trump being the operator of my business. Like never, consistently cancel things. I said, no, no, I wanna keep it because I was scared of uh, the, when would I be able to reschedule it. So I'm excited for this episode. Uh, I hope you are as well. Uh, Facebook, YouTube, are we on Instagram as well? Right here, Instagram, what's up? Uh, we are taking phone numbers from YouTube and Facebook. So if you're on YouTube Live and Facebook Live, put in your phone number uh, and uh, Andy will be taking that. We're not doing the email the question thing, Andy. Do you wanna do that? You like the phone number thing? I like the phone number. Okay, put your phone numbers on YouTube and uh, Facebook and uh, without further ado, Ivan, why don't you tell the Vayner Nation uh, a little bit about who you are um, and a little bit of an origin story. We got into it right before we went on, maybe where you were born, what kind of kid you were, what you got into, how your career started, all the way up to the fact that you wrote this book and uh, maybe some of the other stuff will uh, bounce on. So a context chapter to start off the show. Okay, well Gary, thank you for having us. I'm happy. Appreciate it. Sure. Um, so let's see if I can frame this very quickly. You got time. Uh, no, we, we got can time. do this. So um, I'm the retired CEO of Verizon. Yes. Um, I spent my whole career in the phone business. Yes. I was a CEO for 16 years, retired in uh, 2011. Um, what a run. And when I retired, a lot of people said to me, you know, the industry and the company went through such an extraordinary transformation over the last 20 or 30 years. Why wouldn't you think about writing some sort of a history of the journey of the company? It took me about four years to figure out I wanted to do that. But what really helped was um, I talked to a lot of my colleagues and we identified 50 different people that we interviewed and we kind of told the story through the eyes of 50 people. And did you, I apologize for jumping in, but everybody's laughing right now because I love to jump in, but I'm gonna try to be a little more thoughtful. I, I just think there's a lot of things that are going on that I try to bring out to an audience. Did you take that approach? Because the reason even it took you four years to do it was you thought of writing a book as too self-serving and then thus the format of using other people's voices felt more comfortable to you as a facilitator? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I was more concerned that I would not put my finger on the right issues. Good for you. I did not think I could remember all the right points. That's very fair. So I would remember what I wanted to remember. Of course. So, which, when you write a book, some people will think it's self-serving no matter what you say. Of course. But having 50 people yeah, I like that. Tell the story. Now, of course, I was able to direct it, ask of course, questions. Of course, of course, And then we went to an outside consultant, Ram Sharan, who helped yep. us frame it. And so we now have a story that's uh, through the eyes and the, the experiences of 50 different people. And the other thing we did is we decided to take all the proceeds from the book and donate it back into the Verizon Foundation I to give that. it to people who, um, who have been involved with natural catastrophes like 9-11 or hurricanes and that, and that nature. So I kind of feel like the book is a, is a neutral yeah. place. Yeah. Um, I have my thumbprint on it, of course, 
But there's plenty of uh, stories you, from other people. Have Do you, as an individual, I don't know this, so I'm asking for myself as much for the audience, are are you putting out content in general as a human? Do you write opt-ins? Do you sometimes post on LinkedIn? Do you have a, do you have a, you know, I've, it's really interesting. I'm a CEO and a personality that is growing up in the era of sharing along the way. Um, you're part of a generation where, you know, it could have gone two very different ways, but have you thought of, do you feel like the lessons, I mean, six, now Verizon was public the whole time? Yeah, was, oh yeah, okay, sure. I, I assumed. Uh, you know, 16 years as an active CEO of a publicly traded company comes with a lot of experiences and not a lot of knowledge. This is about the story of Verizon. Do you, at this point in your career, ever feel compelled to randomly write something on LinkedIn or go do a podcast to just talk about what it is to be a leader of people or navigate through term, turmoil? Does that come natural to you? Well, the short answer to your question is when I retired, um, I decided I would not cast any shadow on your over our company or the industry. So I have written, other than the book, I have nothing. done no interviews, no conferences, nothing. Uh, but I have chosen to have relationships with 20, 30, 40, 50 people that I have kept in touch with. So any personal experiences and advice I can give them, I do privately. I totally understand. Right. And I think that's a classic approach of what is a very re well-respected blueprint of somebody who's such a face of an organization and I'm curious what the what what is going to continue to manifest because I do think to your point I think there's a lot of ways to talk about certain things that are more generic without casting a shadow on the prior company or the individual that takes over that hot seat I'm just fascinated by it nonetheless let's keep well, going if I can just add please to what please you please that's so, what we're here for in my personal experience yes before I wrote we wrote this book yes I must have read a hundred biographies of different CEOs. Yes. And what I concluded was, no matter how well they try to hide it, somebody had an ax to grind or a story to tell. I didn't feel I had any unfinished business. When I retired, I was ready to retire. The company was ready to see me go. And I was very comfortable with it. And I, I was that. And I was ready to get on to the next chapter of my life. And so I did, didn't feel that I needed to keep a finger in the industry. Well, now you're starting, this is gonna be a fun day. So this gets me into a very interesting thing. I have been asking myself why after from 20, so I grew up in the wine business. I had this wine store. I did this wine show on the internet. And then when I started building this company, I wasn't producing content. There is this huge gap of me on the internet where I'm making content every day from 2006 to 2011. And then for four years, there's very little content of me. And then in 2015, I picked it back up. 14, 15, and recently I've come to realize that I think positivity needs to be louder. It's very interesting what you just said. It's a very astute observation. I think you're right. And what's interesting and what's manifesting with me currently, this is actively happening with me, is I almost feel an enormous sense of responsibility that as somebody who's positive and optimistic, yet practical and not delusional or entitled, I want to put out content because the people that are putting out the most content on the internet are the disenfranchised, the axes to grind, the negativity. And I, I, I'm fascinated by what you had to just say because I believe that is the approach that many take. And I'm starting to wonder if, you know, I think it's a pleasant thing to read a book from an executive who had an incredible 16 year run, who has no agenda, 
who's just telling stories, self-deprecating, pounds a little chest, whatever it may be. And I, I, I wonder, and one thing that I've been telling my audience is like, look, if you're happy, I think there needs to be some level of consciousness right now of maybe sharing that because the only, the negativity is very loud. And positivity, positivity tends to be a little bit more passive and I'm fascinated by that. And that was another version so, of so it. T- Please. So two responses to what you Please. said. So the, the first thing is almost any CEO wants to leave the business in better shape than they found it. No question. And the, and the one measure of making sure that that works is the institution you left controls its own destiny and continues to do all the things it needs to do to be sustainable. So if you have somebody who's constantly looking back to draw the past to the future, that's not very helpful. I respect that. So people have to continually reinvent the future going forward. Now, just to show that I am human, (laughs) when I I left, what I learned really quickly is the projects I got involved with, there was a tremendous... um, curiosity of transferring my skills, having worked in the phone business for 46 years, and transferring them to other things. And so while everything I've done since I retired is neither as important or as big as I did when I worked at Verizon, almost everything I do is very important to the people I work with. No question. So I serve on the board of a hospital. I serve on the board of the Genome Center here in New York. I'm working with three or four startup companies. I do some consulting with an investment banking firm. And all those activities yeah. draw upon my experience. No question. And there's a lot of fun. You have a lot of fun doing that stuff. So let's go way back. Okay. So you're a kid growing up where? Well, I'm a Bronxite. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the Bronx. Okay. Are you a big Yankee fan? Um, well, uh, it's very interesting. Oh, this the question is, is am I a Yankee fan? So, a man sure. of your generation from the Bronx, so, not being a total diehard Yankee fan is going to have a good story. So I'm excited right now. So I was a Yankee fan. Okay. And I like the Yankees. Okay. However. Keep going. Um, in high school, we played baseball against Ann Craypool. And Craypool became a Met. And then the Yankees fired Yogi. Yes, they did. And once Yogi. they fired Yogi, I was no longer a Yankee fan. So you were such a big Yankee fan. Well, how could you not be a Yankee fan when you're eight years I apo- old? No, I apologize. Right, I said exactly. the wrong thing. You were such a big Yogi fan that the firing of Yogi... I hated the way the Yankees treated Yogi when they fired him. I get it. And then I needed an excuse to root for the Mets anyway. Right. So, and I've been a Mets fan ever since. I love and, it. And I am, today, one of the small minority owners of the Mets. Okay, so you did that thing. Yeah, that's even that's more even fun. More you know what's really funny about this? This is something that maybe people don't know. I grew up a big Yankee fan in Jersey, which you had split. I was a Jets-Yankee guy, so it was like, you know, you had different kind of allegiances. Right. Uh, but the Yankees won in 96, and that was it. When the Rangers won in 94, and when the Yankees won in 96, I stopped rooting for my favorite team. Like literally just winning a championship has been the finishing point to the journey. And I'm actually raising my son a Mets fan because his cousins are Mets fans. And so we're gonna go through a very similar thing because I'm gonna get sucked in at some point. I like point. both teams, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm a Mets fan. Yeah, I get it. Uh, and when the, when the Yankees play the Mets, I root for the Mets. I understand, right. you're a Mets yeah, fan. absolutely. What about football, Giants? J- Jets. Jets! Yes. This is very good. All right, my yes. complete energy has changed. Okay, um, so go ahead, please. Actually, if you think about it, growing up in New York in the 60s, I wasn't corporate. I get it. So like the Jets, like the Mets, you know, mm-hmm. you get that. Right. I get it. Right. What year did you switch to the Mets? Do you know? Well, the first year. Well, the, 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 right away. The Yankees fired Yogi in 64, I believe, okay. right? 
Um, and the Mets were in 62. So I started right there around 62. And when the Mets made Yogi manager, you were pumped. I loved it. You must loved have it. loved that. And as a kid, I was a Willie Mays fan. How, how old were you in 69 when the Jets and Mets won? I was born in 46. Oh, so you were perfect. Yeah. You were like in a beautiful age. Right. So you really got it. Oh, yeah, no. My generation, New York sports. Knicks. Knicks. The Dodgers and Giants were in New York in the mm -hmm. 50s, so it was, it was great. New York was full of great sports. I love it. All right, so you grow up in the Bronx. What kind of kid are you? Entrepreneur, student? Like, what kind of dude were you? A dopey kid. Okay. A dopey kid. <laughs> that's a great answer. Right. No, no, a, I mean, listen, that's kid. the answer. You know, I lollygagged through school. Um, it and didn't the, challenge you? Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that. I think that um, schools I went to were good schools. They challenged you, but I was a dopey kid. I didn't pay attention. Mm -hmm. And I ended up going to... Uh, Lehman College at the time was Hunter College. Mm -hmm. and went for one year. It's in the book. Mm -hmm. um, they threw me out after a year. I didn't. I didn't have good grades, mm -hmm. and uh, I got a job working for the phone company. Uh, as luckily, a as a well, uh, actually, this is, this is my high school report card. Yeah. No matter how dopey you are, you're going to yeah. have to really, really work at challenging that beauty. I I would challenge you with my. I need. Do you have it? Uh, right. I, I probably have it someplace. I need to see that evidence. Go ahead. But um, so anyway, I went to college. Yep. Um, I got a job during the day um, working a freight elevator in Manhattan. Um, then I got drafted because I yep. was 1A. Yeah. And um, lo and behold, I worked for the phone company for one month when I got drafted. And um, I served in the service for uh, 24 months. And the thing about the phone company is they used to write me letters and send me information. Uh, they treated me like I still belonged to them, even though I only worked for them for a month. Wow. And so... Um, what company? It was New York Telephone. New York Telephone. And then when I came out of the Army, I uh, went back to work for the telephone company and went back to night school and finished night school 12 years later. Uh, and uh, the phone company was always a great place for me because they took care of me. <laughs> and they, um, they helped me grow up. So I went from dopey kid to not an, as dopey to an army veteran. You learn a lot of stuff in the army, and then sure. then you work in a big institution. You learn a little discipline, and then I met my wife when I got out of the service, and she gave me more discipline. <laughs> okay, and uh, then you build a career, and then you know one thing leads to the other. And let's spend a few minutes on one thing leads to the other. New York phone company until when? Sorry? You were in the New York phone company until when? Oh, no. I was, if you look at it the way you asked the yes. question, I started yes. in, the, in the New York telephone company in 1966 yes. and was part of the it. system All the way until through. I retired in 2011. That's what I'm looking for. The consolidation, the breaking out, the mergers, the M&As. How did it all go down? Well, I, I started in New York telephone company. I went to AT&T. I worked a little bit at Bell Laboratories. Um, when the AT&T was broken up back in, yep. in the early 80s, I went with the New York Regional Company, um, and then they moved me to Washington, and I lived in Washington, and then we started consolidating the companies, and, and then we bought cellular companies, and we started reconstructing the industry. And you know, I was one of the people that, uh, over the years, that had uh, a lot of experience in working at different parts of the system, so probably my uh, contribution to uh, Verizon probably was to help reconstruct the industry after the uh, uh, the government broke it up. We spent the next 25 years recreating 
a different industry, but one that had scale and scope and focused on wireless and focused on broadband and all the things you guys like. Can we can we can we focus a little bit on the breakup? Yeah, sure. How long was that in the air before it actually went down? How long was it in the public consciousness or behind the scenes or in the press that, hey, this thing is so actually going to get question. broken up? So it's a good question because it has relevance to what's going on today with the That's tech why companies. why I'm asking. Right. History. By the way, in that crappy report card, the only good grades I had are history. Besides gym, I was a gym class hero. Four A's, they're the only A's on my report card. But I, I asked that question and you're very astute. It's, it's self-serving. I do think history is an enormous indicator to the future and I, I haven't had the opportunity to really dig in and so I'm taking my at-bat right now. I'm curious. So, so in a nutshell, if you looked at the old Bell system, yes. the old AT&T yes. in the 70s, yep. there were two complaints that just wouldn't go away. The first is they were stifling new entrants from coming into the market. So they were a big monopoly and no matter how many companies wanted to get into the phone business, even though the technology was there for it to happen, it never really uh, blossomed. And the second thing is the government itself kind of gave up and said, they're too big to regulate. We can't figure it out. And so to your question, that was going on for probably five to 10 years before that, but it never got traction. But then it started to get traction. Why? From your one man's point of view. Well, okay. A, the government was getting more serious about it. And they were, they were suing the company all the time. And they were getting extremely aggressive about trying to correct those things that they thought were a problem, which is barriers to entry. And they couldn't regulate it. But the other thing that happened is the company itself lost the ability to grow. So once AT&T itself said, look, I can't deal with all this government interference and regulation, and I'm having trouble growing myself, myself, that's when they got together and they agreed on a consent decree that broke up the, the company. So if you look at today, um, some of the tech companies, um, not all of them, but some of them, they look too big to regulate. They've become global. They have no allegiance nor a grounding in any country. They operate to a different set of standards. And people are getting frustrated that simple things that should be governable aren't. Now, they haven't run into the problem of no growth. That's right. So, But they will. At some point, growth will slow. And there will be forces in which governments around the world and the companies will come to the conclusion there's another paradigm that's necessary yeah, here. I understand. Right. So these things run in cycles. Now, I tend to be more market-based, so mm -hmm. I'm not looking for government-mandated solutions. I think um, the tech companies deserve a lot of credit for what they've built, but they have run into a, a, a situation in which not all of them are serving customers the way they should. Yeah, I understand. And so, therefore, I think these things will come to a head over the course of the next four or five years. I think the thing that's interesting to me in the current state of the tech companies versus the AT&T parallel is there weren't alternatives to use a different phone provider like like you know like it was it, the alternatives were super difficult like your ability to not use facebook or google is quite high like my ability to use yahoo or bing as a search engine or not be on facebook or instagram is extraordinarily high i think one of the most fascinating things that are happening right now in the current conversation of tech companies is the shocking 
inability for Americans to take any level of accountability on themselves. Well, so this is interesting. So if you go to history, which say, people used to make that argument about Coca-Cola. They're the cause of obesity. Well, people would make that case against the phone company by saying, we're teaching kids to sit on the phone. Say that one more time because so, I'm so, really excited what you just said. I want to get back to no, Coke. I, I'm not but, advocating No, I position, know you're not. But as a business person. No, no, I, I love what you just said. The amount of parents right now that are too young to remember an era when the phone company was blamed for kids being on the phone all day. I mean, they're just doing the same thing. Like, I watch parents yet complain about the iPad and I'm like, take the iPad away from your kid. They're as if the iPad, as if Apple controls them. No, but but as a business, yeah, I'm listening. we had to be sensitive to of course. these kinds of arguments. Of course. We had to balance making money against doing of the right thing. Of course. But, but you, you have to pay attention to these things over the course of, of your course. history because the public will hold you accountable. Of course. Right. But where's the public's accountability? I mean, to me, that is the great, fascinating thing about this. You know, maybe I'm hypersensitive to this because I was born in the Soviet Union. And, but, you know, I, listen, I commend Apple debating should they make apps that stop you from screen time. It's all very wonderful. Coca-Cola has Diet Coke. There is zero sugar Coca-Cola. Um, where, where does it stop and start? Mike Bloomberg in this great city tried to limit how big a soda is and got the reaction in the other way. Yeah. I, I, I think what's fascinating is watching people, I'm fascinated by 70 or 80 years of prosperity. Listen, you're a man from a different generation than a lot of like the people that I'm referring to right now who, you know, I believe that we've had so much prosperity in this country that, you know, we've gotten quite, I, I just, I, I'm just fascinated by lack of accountability. I really am. Well. So this is a political discussion, so I'm, I'm not going to go Yeah, and there, honestly, but, uh, you'll appreciate but, this. I am not, actually, to your point, I'm not really interested in the political, I don't, business, please. as a business discussion. To me, it's a business discussion. Yeah, so I agree with almost everything you said. Um, but there is an issue that we have looked at the last 30 years, and we have created um, more inequality than we intended to create. So we have overdosed on technology. We've overdosed on yeah, but listen, displacing re, people with technology. You're, you're preaching, but yeah. real, so we have to real, figure that out. I'm with you, and to your point, not to make this a political conversation. Here's the problem: our overdosing on technology hasn't even begun. There's a naivete, no, like I right? I mean, like This is the right. This second is the least amount of technology involvement in perpetuity. Correct. So we need to accept that because ideology is super fun. But making your kids spend an hour less on the iPad is not gonna solve a lot of these human truths. Right, so if we look at, I'll use our business. And, and I apologize real quick to cutting you off. I think to segue a little bit, because I think it's gonna bring value to the audience, what I love about the conversation we're having is these are the macro, 
macro trends that a CEO where she and he has to be thinking about on an everyday basis of the micro, like these things we're talking about in the world is how you thought about the four walls, the right. virtual four walls of Verizon for 16 years. Everything's important at all time. The amount of things that happen here, the point you were making about Coca-Cola and- uh, Yeah, I wasn't picking on them, but- No, you but, weren't. You were actually doing exactly right. I right. spend every day about perception becomes reality becomes what you have to deal with. Yeah. So if I can bring this fast forward. Please. Um, so one of the things our industry always had a lot of pride in. So when we moved from first generation wireless to third, now to fifth generation wireless 5G, what we hope will happen is that industries that have been untouched by technology will be disrupted and transformed. Well, especially 5G. I don't know. So let's take an example. People do not understand the... Yeah. technology jump that this is right. about to be. So, so let me use my favorite example. Um, banking has been changed, right? Um, retail is being changed. If you go into a classroom, it looks the same as it did 40 years ago. And so when I look at education, where is the technological disruption that should have occurred in that over the last 30 or 40 years? So we need to, we need to see that happen. Healthcare is another place. The environment's a third. So to me, the business community has lots to give, but there's an uneven focus around where technology gets deployed. And some of that is inertia, some of that is government, some of that is entrenched you know, interests. But the fact is, we need to take the technological revolution and apply it aggressively across industries. So we need, you know, Amazon did what it did. We need an Amazon of education. We need an Amazon of environment to really apply the technology. And that would create jobs and it would create value and it would start to, to slant. What we're now looking at is all this inequality of jobs yeah, and educational skills. I understand. Let's take this in a different turn. Uh, what about in your career, who were your biggest mentors and what were some of the best pieces of advice you got from them? So um, early in my career, I was probably uncoachable. Because um, you thought you were, everything you were no, right about because everything? you know I'm a city kid. You figure you can figure everything out yourself. Right. But w what I think um, the way I would answer your question <laughs> fully how I believe it. Yeah, no, I, I could see that. Yeah, you know, I could see that. What, what what I did though is I used to copy the people who did things I liked, and so somebody I used to like the way they dressed, or somebody else in a meeting would handle bad news very well, or somebody would have a positive attitude. And so I used to use, my mentors were those people who had attributes that I thought were pretty cool. Well, you know, I actually analyzed that as a street kid. Yeah. You're using your environment to make adjustments. That's true, and I learned as I moved up in the company, people watched everything I did. 100%. And so, to me, Imitation is the, is the best form of teaching that you can give people if you do the right thing or if you try to do the right thing. And it's an incredible sense of responsibility once you make that realization. Right. So to answer your question, my mentors were the people who handled controversy well, who had a good attitude, who were always prepared. How much do you think positivity matters? I mean that. Practical positivity, when I say something like that, how does that register in your mind? So remember now, I'm an East Coast kid. Yes. So when I hear that term, I want to make sure I, I, I ferret out the fluff. Go ahead. So I like people with a positive attitude 
but I like people who are practical, street smart, and get things done. Yep. Not people who like to yak it to 20,000 feet. And you just mean pontificating them, positivity? Uh, that's a word. Um, you know, like that's how I, you notice how I framed it up, right? I think positivity is imperative, but if it lacks practicality, it's an ideology. Right. So, and it's vulnerable. Yeah. Now, so I, uh, there was one person who once gave me some advice that's close to this point, Gary, and that is um, we were in a meeting and um, a very contentious subject. And as typical in a meeting on the East Coast, when people get upset with each other, they attack each other personally. Yes. And so my boss, who was from Michigan, just on the way back to, the, to our office, he took me aside and he said, Ivan, why do people around here attack each other and not the problem? And he was sending me a message. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. I never forgot it. And That's here awesome. I am 40 years later and I've never forgotten it. And I sit in a room and I could tell the people who get frustrated with the facts or the issue or can't articulate their point of view. And the first thing they do is attack somebody instead of attacking the problem. I like that, Ivan. And it's just something. So that's I'm, an example. I'm a, I'm a buyer of that. I, uh, so I'm an East Coast positivity. kid. But I always say that I'm unemotional. And what I'm really saying is what you just said, which is the biggest thing I preach to my direct reports is that if you're not capable of being the bigger person in every situation, then you're vulnerable with me because to your Michigan boss's point, it's just, it, there's no value in that behavior. And once right. in a while, you know, I love when you have such a good rapport when you can do it. And there, it's almost like a, it's almost like you're competing on the basketball court, but it, it's, but to your point, it's so, that's cool. I love that. That's a great story. So Please. if I could bring us you back to the book. You can do anything you want, of course. If I could bring us back to the book. So there are lots of chapters in there, but it's a couple of favorite chapters Please. I have. And one of them is the story of how our company um, was able to deliver after 9-11. Let's talk about it. So very quickly, 9-11 um, occurred. Right, right here. Um, we, we were the f one of the first people that were called by the Department of Homeland Security because they said, you guys must know what's going on. What's going on? And we said, we don't know what's going on. Um, we saw the second plane hit the, the tower. Um, within 10 minutes. When you say you saw. We were sitting in our office at the 42nd Street building looking down. We saw the first tower on flames, and we saw the plane hit the second building. You physically saw from your office window? About 30 of us. I'm listening. Our chief engineer said, right there. On that second? He said, they don't put that fire out, that building is going to collapse. And you guys were like, what the hell are you talking about? And we told, we told other people that. Now, we didn't know if that was right, but he was right. Sure and he was. said, and we said to him, Larry, why is that right? He said, because all the steel is going to melt in the center of the building and it's going to collapse. Okay, so our job then, um, because all of Wall Street was out, yep. you know, all of Lower Manhattan was out, and what happened after that was um, the next morning, um, still flames, still trying to uh, look for survivors. Um, the calls were coming in from all over the country about when is the stock exchange going to be up and running? And um, every single one of the trading partners in Wall Street oh, said, yeah, we'll, we'll be up Thursday. Well, we knew that wasn't true. Why did you know that? To not because be true? they couldn't get their people into the buildings. <laughs> right. Right. They didn't have alternative locations. So I remember Dick Grasso, who's, who was the uh, chairman of the stock exchange at the time, he called the meeting, everybody in the city, and he brought our people in. And he, he said, So what are we going to do? Okay. And, and, and our guys just sat there and said, There's no way 
that you're going to be able to, sorry, no problem. get the stock exchange up and running because people won't have facilities. And besides, um, they weren't even letting people into Ground Zero at the time, right? And of course. anybody who wanted to set up facilities in New Jersey or someplace sure. else needed time to do it. So what was interesting is our people basically said, we could do the following, but here's all the things you will have to do. And it was very interesting how Grasso just gravitated to our chief guy, Larry Babio, and said, so what do you need to do? And so we, we talked about what everybody needed to do. And the story here was great because we were running cables out of buildings. We were doing all sorts of things that uh, we needed to do, but we were also helping other people do their jobs. So this is the lesson on 9-11 for us, um, accountability. There is no such thing as accountability if you do your job and the next guy can't do his. Accountability means we all win together. And so we ended up committing to getting the stock exchange up and running the following Monday. And in the process of doing that, we developed relationships with the top 60 or 70 trading partners, the Goldman Sachs, the Merrill Lynch's, all those companies, to help them make sure they can open their facilities, they had enough circuits to get things done, they had the generators and the power and everything else that needed to occur to get the country up and running. And it was one of the greatest experiences of our careers because it was a big deal. For sure. It was a big deal. And, and, but it taught our company back in 2001 what real accountability is. And real accountability is not just doing your job, but it's doing your job and helping the people you work with do their jobs. Yeah, I understand. I mean, it, for, you know, I have such a large audience of 20, 30, 40 year old entrepreneurs uh, or number twos and threes in smaller companies, quite a bit because of the nature of my business, senior executives in Fortune 500s. What are some of the, you know, just back to the context of this conversation, what are, what are some of the things when, back to those 20 or 30 people that you spend time with, startups, boards, I'm sure family and friends, what are, what are some of the tritest and truest things that come to mind that bring value? What, what is some of the advice or, or thoughts that you've seen bring actual value to others um, in their careers or ambitions that you feel are like, I don't wanna call them your bill of rights or your commandments, but yes, that kind of stuff. What are some of the truest things that you believe in as an operator, as an executive? Probably the thing that comes to mind first, Gary, Please. is curiosity and the willingness to ask questions. Having the humility to know that you don't know everything. Well, to help people think through things. But, yeah, I mean, do you right. think it's hard when you get to such a senior level as you sat on to show that, you know, was it hard for you to develop the ability to manifest curiosity into what is humility of a leader or was that something that came natural to you? No, you know, um, I, I think in my case, yeah. um, I, I always came with the attitude that I came from the Bronx. So I, I don't think it, it ever dawned on me that I had the right to act like I graduated MIT or- I understand. I, I just didn't do that. Right. So I, I always worried about making the mistake. That's right. So in my case, I think asking a lot of questions, being prepared, uh, taking the next step. You brought up bringing prepared a couple of times. It's not something I think a lot about. You know, I, I think I stay in my lane and so thus by macro I'm prepared. You brought it up three times now. How, talk, talk to me about that for five seconds. Were I don't, you, think, uh, I don't think I've ever seen a presentation brought to me that there weren't 
three good questions that you couldn't ask. Not to catch people, but just to dig deeper, understand the secondary and the tertiary effects of things. So, so I think it's really important to be prepared. Now, I'll, I'll just give you one anecdote that's in the book. Please. So it probably helped me make my career, even though it was a freak thing. I'm excited already. So, so it was, Seriously, I love it this was in 1981. Okay. And um, somehow I was on some sort of a task force. And I was supposed to make a presentation to all of the high-level people at AT&T, including Charlie Brown. Mm. Charlie Brown was the chairman and CEO of the company. And I was sort of a mid-level person. Not the one with Snoopy. Okay. All right, go ahead. And Charlie Brown was a legendary guy. You know? Yeah, big time. So he um, he shows up. Have you interacted with Charlie at never, this point? Never met so him So are you before. scared crapless? Um, or you felt prepared? I was prepared. Okay, keep and, going. And I'll tell you why I was prepared. I can't wait. So I know there's a punchline coming. There had to be 50 people in the room, all yep. these vice presidents. Yep. And the meeting was 8 o'clock in the morning. I got there at 6.30 to make sure everything worked. Nice. Um, and what was, comes, the, what was the technology of the day at 81 of working? It was overhead uh, <laughs> yeah. overhead graphs. Uh -huh. you, know, you had to make them. Uh -huh. um, and so he walks in at 1 minute to 8. And he sits down. No chit-chat. He says, proceed. Dead silence. You know? And yep. everybody's sitting there with their arms folded. You know, nobody's smiling, everything else. So, um, not I, the warmest room of all time. Yeah, no, it's okay. So, I started the presentation, and he goes, I know that. Okay, put up the second chart. He goes, I know that. Third chart, he goes, I know that. And I said, No, you don't. Really? Yeah, and I didn't mean it as to be. It just came natural. Right. I just said, I know you don't know this. And he, dead silence in the room. He looks at me and he goes, Okay, proceed. So, he showed me something. Right? He didn't get upset. He just tested it, and then I, we talked it through. Now, the gist of the whole presentation was, even though AT&T signed this consent decree with the government, and they were going to break up the system, my point to them was the government wasn't going to cooperate with making this happen easily. So we were going to have to do some things on our own. And I remember his lawyers and all his vice presidents were going nuts. Um, and he just sat there. He just sat there. And at the end of the presentation, he goes, thank you very much. He got up and left. Okay, that's what he did. And of course, everybody came up to me and said, you're screwed. Like, you might as well quit now. <laughs> and I remember nothing happened for about a week. And then I got a call from my vice president, who was a very big, big person. He says, come into the office. And he, he brought in all the naysayers. And he said, now before everybody starts screaming, he goes, and I had a beard at the time, full beard. <laughs> Okay, full beard. Nobody had a beard at AT&T. And Walter Kelly was his name. And he said to everybody in the room, he said, you know, we have four sons, and they all have facial hair. And this was in 1980, right? And he goes, we can't get them to shave. He goes, what is it with you young people? You were 45, though. Yeah, well, right? no, I was in almost um, Well, because you were born in 46, you said? Uh, 66. Oh, 66. Right. Right. 66. Oh, no, so no, you're 46. No, no. 46. I was 46. Born in 46. So you're 44, 45, actually. Um, well, no. In right? This is 81, you 81, said. 81, yeah, right, right. Let's do the math, right? Yeah. 86, I was, I was um, 40, right? Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. right. My math is, is off. Right? Go ahead. So Keep I going. In, do I have yeah. the math right? Yeah, you got the math right. Okay. I got it wrong. Okay, right. Go ahead. I wouldn't want my shareholders. No, no, my math is off. Okay. I apologize. Go so ahead. Anyway, he said, he said, what is it with the young people? And, and we just laughed. And then he said to everybody in the room, listen to the young man. That's just what he said. Now, this was like a high-level person at AT&T. You would never think he would have that kind of flexibility and humility. Yep. But he did. So it's a lesson. Winning player. 
a lesson I never forgot. I believe in it the most. Like nothing, nothing makes me happier than being wrong. But I always I were, think I'm right. But Gary, if I wasn't prepared Please. and didn't have the self confidence, you would have it, never said it. I would have never. I said totally it. get it, brother. I would have just moved my into man, the conversation. My man, honestly, the like as somebody who's always thinks there's a second game in the room, this is basically how I live my life. The amount I know about executives that work for me, clients, co-founders, fancy people in the world that people think are brilliant, the amount of things I know by asking a singular question in a meeting. Right. The amount of times I've made up something to see if that person just agrees to appease the city. Like, it's the most important, you have to get it. When you are sitting in a world where you walk in one minute before a meeting and you've gotta like navigate that much and time is your biggest enemy, right. you have to create all these secondary skill sets to be able to understand the situation at hand. I have an incredible read on humans based on moments like that. So, so coming back to Verizon Untethered, so we believed as a culture, we were as curious as any culture could ever be. Hmm. So the head of my wireless company or the head of some of the units, when they knew I was traveling around the country for whatever reason, they would give me a list of stores to go into and say, go make a field visit. And I used to do that. And we all used to do that. And did we would just go- Did the stores know you were coming? No. Because one of the things I hated growing up in the liquor business is my dad had a big liquor store and when the Smirnoffs or the Absolute or the Budweiser big dogs would come, we would stage the store. And I remember when I finally was 16 and had some level of a voice, which I really didn't even at 16, but I'd been working in the store for a couple of years at that point. I said, Dad, we're not doing that person a service. And he looked at me like I was crazy and I go, I remember when I took over operations at 22, I never staged the store. And the distributor would be pissed, the regional managers, the holding companies would be pissed, and the CEO, eight out of 10 times, was thrilled. It was yeah. the only truth they got. But we I go, nobody's drinking your vodka, it sucks. But we, there's, an anecdote, there's an anecdote in here that my successor, Lowell McAdam, used to also make field visits. He'd go into a store, if there was a light bulb out, he would unscrew the light bulb out, and he would mail it to the district manager. And, and you do that across a company consistently for three, four, five years, people pay attention. A hundred thousand percent. Yeah, and, and it's a big thing. So curiosity is one thing. The other thing Let's is- Let's get a phone call in here. Yeah, the other thing is uh, operational fun. Go ahead. excellence. We were sticklers for that. Now you're always trying to figure out if you're doing the right thing for your customers. Yes. But we really worked hard at that. You guys built a crazy company. We did. You really did. A lot of who, people did. Who were, who were your core competitors when you guys kind of like, well, of when course. in your prime of your career, when you kind of took on, well, AT&T and, yep. and Sprint and yep. T-Mobile were there, yep. and you know, and, and later on on the, uh, on the who's disappeared? Who's enjoyed this Verizon ring back tone while you your know, party who is here? Who was a competitor when you first started that is no longer out there? Anybody Hello? stand out? Oh, we got somebody. I apologize. Who's this? Robert. Robert. It's Gary Vaynerchuk. You're on with Ivan. Please say hello. Hey, Gary V. Awesome. You guys are amazing. I love your show. Thank you. What's your question? Uh, basically, I was—I actually am a current uh, member of Verizon Wireless, and the whole thing with 5G and our stock and telecommunications, I mean, what's our future going to look like, or even for small businesses, is that going to help make everything grow? 
with small business of 5G is gonna bring, in your, in your opinion. Ivan, as somebody who's just very like kind of headline reading at this point and started digging in, but I've, I've dug in because there are some clear things that I'm interested in with 5G. Maybe based on that question, for everybody who's listening, and I don't know how much or how little you've gone deep into 5G, but if you have gone a little bit deeper, which I'm gonna make assumptions, but not necessarily based on where you are at this point, what's, what are some of the head, like what are some of the real bullet points that I think, that you think yeah. people are either missing or the most exciting things to you about this technology? Right, so, so let me make sure I qualify by saying that I no longer speak for the company. I know that. But I love the company. <laughs> Understood. Okay? And, and thank you for your call, and for, and for Verizon Wireless, you guys are doing great, so keep it up. So f- oh, it, thank you very much. So 5G, so what's different about 5G? Yes. So first, so a couple of things. So first of all, the number of the devices. Rob, you thanks could, for calling, brother. The number of devices you could connect in a in a one square mile is an order of magnitude higher than it is today. So you could create services in which you have millions of the devices in a very small geographic area. They use less power, so you can do the same thing with far less power. The latency, the speed of switching calls much lower. That seems to be a really exciting so that's part. A huge the latency issue. thing seems to be and then a the, big play. And then the amount of data that you can transmit is an order of magnitude like ten, tenfold. Um, and the other thing is the cost to transmit the data is much lower. So when you look at... I think the name itself confuses the end consumer because yeah. it's one tick up, yet the magnitude is so extraordinary. Yeah, and that's the same thing happened when we went from 3 doesn't to 4G. Mean, that's right, but with 3 to 4G, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems, especially on latency, which I think affects a lot of things, it seems like the jump here is kind of like a signature jump. I, I just think a lot of people assume my stuff's gonna be faster, and there's just so much more to it. So let's use examples. Please. I mean, you've heard these examples before, so we'll take the easy one, self-driving cars. Okay. This is the, a big so, one for me. So, you know, whether you believe you like it or not, the fact is, uh, over time, when you can reduce the latency and increase um, the topography and the maps, you eliminate a lot of problems, and you could actually run cities. So, Verizon today is in, introducing smart cities in Sacramento yep. and Portland, and traffic lights. They can. Do, that's one thing. Um, so, t- something more exotic. Think of healthcare um, with broadband. You could do an operation with a patient sitting in um, Auburn University and the doctor could be in San Francisco. Because of the lack of latency, right? Because of the, the speed of the connection. It's in real time. And the in clarity essence. in real time. And just think of what you can do for, for example, health services to rural America or health services into poor areas or That's people right. who can't travel, you know, that kind of thing. Just think what you can, uh, kind of services you can offer to the elderly. The latchkey. So that's not our thing in the phone company. I mean, we do the infrastructure. That's right, you're the pipes. We put the network in. Yep. And I always get uncomfortable that we have to explain what the applications are. When right, because the people, market needs to take yeah, over. Yeah, the market will yeah. catch up to it and it'll do it. It'll, the market will create it. But the infrastructure network and pipes, in essence, allow for so many more innovations. Well, just think of like, what you're reading now, um, which, again, um, you could like it or not, but all of a sudden, the gambling industry has figured this out. And just think of what they're going to do with... You can literally bet on this pitch right? because the speed in which it's happening now is not vulnerable to the connection. And you could be sitting in Miami betting on a game in Chicago. That's right. Okay, well, you but literally do that this before. pitch. Right. Because, I mean, it really does matter. It, yes. Now, that may not be the perfect use no. of 5G, but 
there may be other things. But look, somebody do. getting escapism because they love betting on every pitch of baseball. To back to you said something very important, which is the big things you were doing at Verizon. Well, for the three-person startup in Cincinnati that you're helping, their problems are the biggest problems to them in the world. Yep. To the person who literally got shot and is in a hospital and can be helped by somebody who understands this situation better than anybody there and can electronically do it from somewhere away, guess what? Staying alive is the biggest thing in the world. But the person sitting in their living room who's not happy with their life and needs escapism and needs to gamble on a baseball game to be able to get through their day, that's their most important thing at their at their life. And I think that's just humans. Yeah, I'll use my, Please. my favorite whipping toy here. So you think about it. I grew up in an era where you had to go to a a sports event, you know, go to the stadium, you participate in sports, right? Now, it's virtual. You can watch any soccer game, any game, anytime you want. So the one industry that's never changed its model is education. Yeah. It just drives me crazy. It absolutely drives me crazy that we could be teaching people so much quicker if we applied all this technology in a way What about that the fact that we right. continue to teach people to memorize information when information is at your fingertip? Yeah, well. Let's just, how about the curriculum that fills the format? You know, it's absurd yeah. what we're doing with that. Well, your audience understands this, so. Well, but, but it takes. But there's hope, there's, there's a, really a lot of hope. Well, there's, there's also, it's also on us, this goes back to accountability. If, Pete, if parents continue to think a diploma from a college is the KPI and is going to set their kids up for happiness and success, we will continue to be vulnerable. I think what, you know, it's funny. I think the television commercials are grossly overpriced media. And I've been advocating that as an ad man of the new version for the last decade. I just thought that biggest brands in the world would become more educated over time and know how to spend their money more wisely. I did not anticipate OTT networks like Hulu and Amazon Prime and Netflix to completely eliminate over time people even consuming the content of the big three networks, let alone the commercials. I feel like that's what's gonna happen with education. This is not gonna be the education system figuring itself out because there's too many inherent interests, needs, and putting history on a pedestal. This is something coming from the outside, disrupting it at a level that it has no choice. Yeah, well, there isn't enough competition in education. The that's, end. Part, that's part of the problem. The end. Yeah. The cab industry wasn't going to make it better for us so that we could op get a, f a phone to pick me up in two seconds because time is valuable to me. It took an outside force, and then everybody kicks in. You know, for many years, uh, one of the troubles, one of the challenges we had is kids coming out of either high school or college didn't have the minimum requirements to do the jobs that we had. I get it. So we would have to spend... From an engineering standpoint? Not those jobs, but you know, uh, customer-facing jobs. I see. Technicians' jobs. I see. So we had a we spent a lot of money training people that yeah. to do things that they should have learned in school. I get it. Right. Listen, we could have seventeen episodes of our points of view on school. Clearly. Yeah. Now I'm I'm positive about it because I I think this will there is a will in this country and and as long as we don't destroy the culture of people wanting to succeed and live the american dream and work this will get this will be somewhat we're not, we're back to not getting political we won't destroy that's the dna of this place like there's this ebbs and flows but the dna of this place now look every empire falls for a reason too much success well there's a lot of competition 
uh, yeah. in, in the world. So I think if anything, we'll have to respond to that. Yeah, the the right. kid growing up in China as an only child in a lower class family is way more hungry than you. And that's going to play out. It will. It sure will. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Everybody watching, I highly recommend picking up the book, especially um, uh, especially to a lot of you that are either building organizations or are within them. I think the story format and the perspective format will bring value. So we'll link that up on Amazon, the Amazon link to uh, all of you on all our social channels. And Ivan, one more time, thank you for being on the show. Thank you. You keep asking questions, we'll keep answering them. <laughs>